Hello, this is Paul Moses. I'm a contributing writer for Commonweal Magazine. And I'm here speaking today with Donald Kerwin, the executive director of the Center for Migration Studies based in New York City. Donald, it's very good to be with you again. And I, we've spoken a number of times before. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. The Center for Migration Studies. I've always been struck at how you deal with kind of historical aspects of migration. You have a wonderful archive about immigration in the United States, and yet you're, you're kind of cutting edge following the latest issues. How do those two things come together for you? I mean, I think that they come together quite well because a lot of what we see in our current debate and situation are situations that we've seen in the past in the United States, nativism and hostility to immigrants and kind of the causes of those phenomenon as well. And more, I think, the struggle of immigrants and how ultimately they've prevailed and succeeded in the United States, which is going to happen and is happening in the United States now as well. Now, the, the Catholic Church certainly played an important role in the uh, earlier migrations. And in fact, I, I, I think your organization even traces back to an Italian bishop, Giovanni Battista Scalabrini, who really took the plight of Italian immigrants to America uh, to heart and sent priests over and, and, and Mother Cabrini to work with them. So I wanted to ask about your more recent survey of Catholic social service and charitable organizations that work with immigrants now. And in it, you said they identified lack of community support as their largest obstacle. Can you discuss that for us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very difficult moment for agencies that serve immigrants as Catholic agencies do. And the survey was of a broad range of Catholic institutions from hospitals to charities to legal programs to refugee programs to schools and, and the like. And, you know, it's difficult to serve people, for example, when they're afraid to get on buses because they think that they might be apprehended and deported if they use public transportation or where you have to explain that a charity is actually a safe space for them, a place that they can come and don't have to worry about immigration enforcement and can receive services regardless of what their status is or their concerns and fears might be. So I think that funding is always an issue for these agencies, but it's also the current climate that's a big challenge to them and because they represent immigrants so extensively. And how about their own Catholic community? These these are organizations are Catholic organizations, I presume Catholic charities and and institutions like that. Are they concerned about the larger Catholic community's support for their mission to immigrants? I think that they are, and I think that we all are. And this is something that doesn't get raised in the mainstream debate to the extent it should nor does it get raised in church circles to the extent it should, which is that the people that are being targeted right now under both measures to crack down on undocumented immigrants, but even more so measures to cut back on legal immigration and now focus on even citizenship in the United States, these people are, are co-religious. You know, these are a heavily Catholic population Right. And, you know, it reminds me of, you know, the Martin Luther King statement to the effect that at the end of the day, it'll be more painful to us 
not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And in this case, what you have is kind of our co-religionists, our fellow Catholics, who are subjected to this terrible situation and this terrible environment in the United States. And lots of times I'm, I think Catholic institutions are too quiet about that. And, don't, and Catholics themselves don't recognize that who we're talking about so casually in the public space are fellow Catholics. You know, the reason I um, first encountered Center for Migration Studies was that I was doing research for a book on the history of the relationship between the Irish and the Italians in New York. And certainly the Italians were almost all Catholic and the Irish in New York were, were mostly Catholic also. Do you see any parallels to, to what was going on then? I think it's the same types of struggles, struggles in the workplace, struggles to keep families together and united, struggles related to how different populations were portrayed historically as criminals or a burden or people that were incapable of assimilating or a threat. This is kind of an American experience, unfortunately, although I must say it's a fairly extreme example that we're seeing right now. And I would say an administration, and particularly a president, that, that really is the sui generis nativist administration in U.S. history. And we've had historians look at it, and of course, they're borrowing a lot of the language from past eras of heavy nativism. But it's also true. We've never had a president that's gone after immigrants in the way that this one has. Yeah, yeah I remember that when I had interviewed you for Commonweal earlier, you had said to me, uh, many participants in this, this study wondered why their parish priests and bishops had failed to speak in their defense during the election campaign and why so many of their co-religionists were willing, at the very least, to overlook Trump's slanderous attacks on them. It, it, that's kind of what you're referring to, I, I guess. It is. And I think that the bishops have spoken fairly steadily and fairly aggressively since the campaign and, and during the campaign to a certain extent, although they come out different ways on all sorts of different issues, you know, so it's not just obviously immigration that they're focused on, but they've seen what what's happened, which is you know, the talk about a wall and enforcement and the vilification of immigrants and a focus, not just, as I said, on things like the wall, which is a, an unbelievably foolish idea, but legal immigration categories, cuts in refugee admissions to the lowest level in the programs, you know, 38 year history cuts in the Central American Minors Program that allowed children to come legally to join their legally present parents here in the United States when they, when they were at risk in the um, Northern Triangle states. Proposals to cut legal immigration to the United States by 50% with a particular focus on family-based immigration, you know, people that were related closely to a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident that would qualify them for a visa. So on and on and on, these various proposals, cutting the temporary protected status, nations that are eligible for that status, you know, eliminating six national groups from that program. And it's all been about basically preventing people from accessing paths to legal status or turning people that had legal status into undocumented and forcing them to leave the country. 
And I think now the focus is on citizenship. So they're resurrecting the idea that birthright citizenship, which is really a remarkable feature of our constitutional system, that that could be done away with by some kind of congressional declaration or executive fiat or something. And the establishment of a naturalization task force to or denaturalization task force to give people the sense really that, you know, even if you become a citizen, your status here is going to be insecure. And and just the things like the high fees for gaining legal status, which is a disincentive for people to pursue legal status. And I, the big one that's coming up now is a significant expansion of the public charge grounds of inadmissibility. A public charge is somebody who would need to be on uh, public assistance. Yeah, well, would have been, but the, it, it's going to be expanded very significantly to both beneficiaries of a visa, but also family members, including U.S. citizen children, who um, basically would use any kind of public benefit or service could be subject to the public. Those people that would benefit from a visa or be able otherwise to become a lawful permanent resident would be found inadmissible as a public charge in those circumstances. So we see a historical echo here, too, uh, I guess, from the earliest uh, times of immigration regulation, this idea of a public charge was always a, a big, big issue. It was. You, you know, I, I want to tell you, in, in writing and speaking about immigration, I often get the reaction from people, well, my people came here illegally. For many people, that's the end of the discussion. Uh, what would you say? The, the immigration laws were a lot different 100 years ago. Well, yeah, 100, 125 years ago. But what would you say to that that line of argument? Yeah, there, there, you know, everybody came pretty much at one point in our country. I mean, the it wasn't until the 1920s that there were legal immigration categories. I mean, there were grounds of exclusion before that. But basically, it was, yeah, it was more wide open at that point. But I, I'd say, I mean, I think I'd answer that in two ways. One is there's this sense that the undocumented to the United States are both a burden and, and scoff laws. But if you just look at that population, almost 4 million of them have a relationship to a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident that qualifies them for a family-based visa and then that's been determined by the federal government, but they're waiting in backlogs to obtain that visa or to be able to secure it. There's about 20%, maybe 15 to 20% that are potentially eligible for permanent status but can't afford it or don't know that they're eligible. You have high percentages that have been here more than 15 years and even more than 20 years. You have almost 4 million that are parents of U.S. citizens or lawful permanent residents. And almost 3 million who were brought here, you know, prior to the age of 14. So this doesn't, this looks like a very sympathetic population. It looks like us, you know, it looks like the country. These people are not burdens. They're not scoff laws. You know, basically what we've had in the United States is a very significant investment in our immigration enforcement system, but we haven't had an overhaul of our legal immigration system in 53 years. And think about what's changed in those 53 years. So you still have a system where there's only 5,000 employment-based visas for low-skilled workers. And think about all the you know, undocumented people, more than 5 million of them working. 
So uh, there's this real disconnect and misalignment between, you know, our interests, economic and family and otherwise, and our immigration system. Don, I wonder if I could ask you a bit about your own family saga, because it, it so often comes to uh, down to a personal issue for many people. My uh, relatives, ancestors on both sides were Irish Catholics, the Moriarty family in Manchester, Connecticut, and the Kerwin family in Waterbury, Connecticut. And, you know, the other, on the, on the mom's side or the grandmother's side, there were Mohalls and Sheridans. So all, all Irish. And we heard those stories about, even from my grandparents, about, you know, how they tried to keep their house, for example, immaculately clean because of the reputation of Irish and the libeling of Irish is dirty, you know, and not hardworking and, and all of those kinds of stereotypes that really stung them years, decades later. So I, I had a clear sense of that history growing up. But I must say, you know, it wasn't until, it wasn't until I started to work with a colleague at um, the Catholic Legal Immigration Network years later who considered me an Irish Catholic, that I started thinking more about, yeah, actually I was Irish, you know, because I am and an Irish Catholic and the, the grandchild of that whole world and that whole community. You're uh, a, a grandson of immigrants or a great-grandson? A great-grandson, yeah. Irish immigrants on all, all four sides, all my grandparents, their families were from different places in Ireland. So Moriarty's, Mulhall's, Sheridan's, and Kerwin's, and all from all settled in Connecticut. And so I grew up, you know, hearing those stories of their struggles in the workplace in the late um, 19th century, because one of them, one of the grandfathers actually worked on the railroad, I believe, the Intercontinental Railroad. So that would have been in the, I think, in the 1870s, 1880s. So you know, I heard those stories and I knew of their struggles and their parents' struggles and the kinds of libels that they were exposed to as scandalous language of being dirty Irish and criminals and brawlers and all drinkers and all of those, you know, accusations. And my grandparents, when they got married, for example, on one side, vowed to themselves that they'd always keep their home and their gardens immaculately clean because of that stereotype of the dirty Irish. So I, I heard, I heard about that. And, um, but you know, it had been, it was a bit removed for me, to be honest. And I didn't really start to think about it, all of that seriously until I started to do legal work with immigrants and also had a colleague who was an Irish Catholic immigrant, first generation, who very much considered me Irish. And I <laughs> even though you didn't necessarily feel that way yourself so much. Yeah. And he, he would even, you know, think that I went to Catholic schools, for example, in high school, just because it fit the, it fit the bill for him. You know, in fact, I didn't. <laughs> so, but it, you know, it got me to thinking that we, t we tend to forget history and we tend to move on and it would be useful for Catholics and others to remember their immigrant history because really the struggles that immigrants today are facing are the same struggles their grandparents and great-grandparents faced. I had a situation, I talked to a lot of groups, Catholic and otherwise, and one of the proudest moments I had in speaking to, the, to these groups was 
when a, a woman came up to me after the talk and said, and she was crying and she said, you know, I realized listening to you that you weren't talking about Mexican immigrants or Central American immigrants. You were actually talking about my grandparents. And I think that Catholic teaching is really about empathy and solidarity with people. And however you can empathize, whether it's by recognizing our biblical heritage of migration or Christ's migrant ministry or his teaching or your own ancestors' history or our church in the United States history as an immigrant church, that's what's crucially important in terms of um, analyzing these issues and approaching these issues in, in the person-centered way that the church teaches. Let me ask you a little bit about uh, policy for refugees and, and you know, keeping it uh, on the personal level, I'll, I'll tell you that, that my father um, was a German Jewish refugee from Hitler. He came to the United States in uh, 1938. Um, and, uh, um, Recently, I came upon some old papers of his and found his visa that was, you know, stamped in, I believe it was Cologne. And uh, uh, so, you know, it's kind of an emotional thing for me in a way, uh, how we respond to refugees, because as you know, many people after my father were not able to leave. That's uh, so you've you've got a tremendous um, experience and you must have heard, you know, incredible stories from him or maybe not. Maybe he didn't speak about it. What do you think is appropriate policy uh, for dealing with refugees today, many of whom are coming from uh, from uh, predominantly Muslim countries? That seems to be where the the biggest dispute really is, uh, and not just in the United States, but certainly uh, all over Europe. How to handle that? Well, it hasn't been handled. I think is the is the problem. You have now what is it sixty eight million forcibly displaced people, 25.4 million of them are refugees. And they, they come from large, complicated refugee producing scenarios, a lot of these populations. But in terms of the United States, you know, to address those conditions that, are, that create refugees with all of its, you know, diplomatic and other resources, development resources and others, I think is crucially important and an obvious point. But also um, to contribute to the host communities for refugees, you know, it's the, it's the states that are near these enormous refugee producing situations, whether bordering Syria or South Sudan or wherever it is, um, that are bearing the burden of these crises and um, that hosts 90% of the world's refugees. But at the very least, the United States can take in more refugees to resettle than it does. And so you have this record number of refugees and forcibly displaced people, and yet the United States is admitting the fewest number of refugees in, its, in the program's history, which was created in 1980. So I think that's really shameful because the Refugee Resettlement Program um, is for people that are desperate, that are in real peril where they find themselves, that are hard cases. And these people um, really need to get out of the situations that they're in. And it's, I don't, I think it's probably one of the worst things that we're doing now as a country to pull back from 
that program and not admit people from certain countries, mostly Muslim majority countries, when, when the, the need is so great is and desperate. Within its legal obligations under international treaties, both on refugees and uh, also uh, asylum issues? I mean, I think that the refugee program, it could clearly admit more refugees and should admit more refugees. And I think that that's, that's not an issue of international law, but it's, it's, a, it's a humanitarian issue. But there are lots of issues related to violations of international law and of domestic law. And I think one of the big ones that we've seen is at the U.S.-Mexico border where people that seek admission and request and say that they fear returning home or request political asylum oftentimes are not, are not put in the process to seek political asylum. And that's a violation in, in, uh, of both domestic law and international law because sometimes these people are returned to places that are extraordinarily dangerous like the Northern Triangle states in Central America. So, yeah, I think there are violations of international law, but there's certainly um, offenses against, you know, the humanitarian needs and the failure to recognize kind of the dignity and the absolute desperation of a lot of populations that we could we could be helping, lives we could be saving that we're not. You've recommended in some of your publications legalizing many undocumented immigrants Along with that, taking steps to make sure we don't ever have such a large undocumented population again. I'm wondering what kind of steps could be taken that would keep us from having that large undocumented population. I know that the Donald Trump response would be, well, one of those steps is to build a wall. But what steps would you suggest? Well, I think the wall is not the, you know, it's not a smart policy proposal. We have research that shows that of the newly undocumented populations, two thirds of them are people that actually enter the United States legally on temporary visas, and then they overstay those visas. So you'd need a wall that's, as a colleague puts it, 40,000 feet high to actually stop those people, right? And the wall is just not practical in lots of places along the border, and it kills the communities that are there. And there's a lot of border enforcement resources any which way. This was, not, this was not something that the Border Patrol was asking for before the Trump administration. So I think it's not, the wall is not the solution. I think the most important thing is actually aligning our legal immigration policies with our national interests. Those interests, you know, need to be defined in the way that they've traditionally been defined, you know, in terms of economic competitiveness, in terms of a value that we attach to the preservation and reunification of families and um, humanitarian values as well. And the, I think our problem right now is that we don't have consensus on those basic values and those basic interests that have undergirded U.S. immigration policies. That's a big challenge. But the key thing of all of the elements of, say, a comprehensive or a broad approach is not enforcement because we've done that. We spend huge amounts of money on enforcement. It's it's the legal immigration piece. Yeah. Now, the Obama administration was pretty aggressive on enforcement. I don't know if everybody fully realizes that. 
but I, and I, I think possibly with an eye that to showing that if it could be aggressive on enforcement, then we can you know moderate the laws. What, what was your view back then of how President Obama was handling uh, immigration and its enforcement? I think that what the dynamic was at that point was that you had Republicans saying, mostly Republicans saying, that you first have to control the border. And once you control the border, then we can talk about broader immigration reform. And so Obama more or less took them at his word, but he was also on his own strong on enforcement and basically started to kind of, in record numbers, pick up people and deport them from the United States. And at some point, he realized that um, the bar kept getting set higher and higher until operational control of the border meant, you know, nobody would be entering without documentation, which is an impossible bar. And at that point, he started to act in terms of his own, on his own discretion to create various categories of um, undocumented people and illegal crossers that he was prioritizing, you know, particularly people with serious criminal records and national security risks and recent border crossers and others who he wasn't prioritizing for removal or enforcement. And out of that came, for example, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. He was basically saying we have limited enforcement resources and we're not going to use it on people that were brought here as children and for all intents and purposes are American children. And of course, he was attacked very viciously as a is a scofflaw and an imperial president and a despot, et cetera. But, you know, the Trump administration has used its executive authority much more broadly, but it's all been enforcement related and basically killing humanitarian programs and stopping legal immigration in in every way that it can think of doing administratively. that's That's a bit of hypocrisy there, but that's that's how it's using its very broad kind of executive authority although it's in some of the court cases it hasn't it hasn't succeeded yeah although obama you know was pretty strong on enforcement there's just an edge in the trump approach with all the rhetoric that comes along with it that i i think sits poorly with kind of the catholic worldview not just specific teachings but Politically, Catholics tend to be in the more moderate in the United States. I'm just wondering if the kind of harshness of this approach, is it, is it affecting Catholic opinion, do you think, that in any significant way? I think it can't help but affect some people's opinions on immigrants, but it's also true that they've overreached in, in ways that are so um, inhumane and really so despicable, particularly on the separation of families that it's created an opportunity for people to take kind of a second look and to say, no, this isn't the way that we, this isn't the way that, these aren't our values. These aren't our religious values. They're not our civic values. Yeah, yeah I would think that that family separation is, is an area that pretty much all Catholics would agree is a bad thing but, uh, if, they're, if they're really uh, attuned to Catholic teachings. Yeah, definitely. And also the whole idea of, you know, people fleeing persecution and providing safety to them and protection to them. I mean, you know, our 
tradition teaches empathy with immigrants, and it, there's a recognition that, in fact, we are immigrants. We, we're, they're us. We're them, you know. And so the whole, the whole teaching is about the holy family as a refugee family and welcoming the stranger. And we have these traditions like, you know, the exodus and the ex- exile and the dispersion, you know, that, that's part of our tradition or the Holy Family's flight to Egypt or Jesus's itinerant ministry or Paul on the road to Damascus. All of these things are migration narratives. So our own heritage, biblical heritage, and our history in the United States is a migrant history. And I think that... Um, it would be terrific if we could live up to that as a church, because we could really speak powerfully to what's happening to immigrants and refugees and come up with far better policies than what we're seeing today. Don, is there anything else you'd like to add to our discussion? It can be a disappointing time for people that have been doing this work. And particularly for immigrants, it can be a very diff- difficult time. So, I mean, I would just encourage people to take heart And I'd encourage Catholics and Catholic institutions to give this that aren't heavily involved on the side of the church, the the bishop's positions, the institutional positions, to give them a second look because it's a very, very desperate time for their co-religionists and for other immigrants in the United States. And Catholic teaching speaks very clearly to a different vision of immigrants and a different vision of our country than what we're seeing today. Donald Kerwin, thank you very much for being with us here at Commonweal. We wish you really the best in your work. Thank you very much.